one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Mormonism and the Rules of Evidence. With me tonight is Colby Reddish from Idaho. Correct, Colby? How are you doing? That's right. Yeah, I live right outside Boise. I'm doing great. How are you? Super duper for this early morning in November. Today's date is November 27th, 2022. We wanted to get together and do a podcast on something that Colby came up with the idea for and that we've been talking about for quite some time doing because Colby and I share a couple of things in common. The first thing is Mormonism. I've been a member of the Mormon church for over 40 years now, or more correctly, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for over 40 years. And Colby, you were a member of the church for how long? I was a member for 33 years. Yeah, sorry to turn the knife with that use of the word were. I understand that your departure from the church is recent. Um, I believe we received resignation confirmations in August, so about three months. Yeah. Okay, so are you over this thing? Yeah, I am. You know, our our life has gotten uh, a lot better um, since. It's interesting having done uh, an interview with John on Mormon Stories. It's kind of like a time capsule of John. John who? John who? John Dolan. Sorry. Who's that? <laughs> Anyways, like when I'll see I'll see comments come in on that video, and it's just an interesting kind of like time capsule of pain to look back on. Um, I think especially when I look back at some of the comments my wife made. But I think we're doing great. Um, really happy with where we're at right now. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. By the way, just kidding. There, in case John Delin happens to listen to this show, on the off chance that he listens to this show, I know your last name. It's Delin. But the other thing that we have in common, in addition to Mormonism, is the law. Because I've been a lawyer now for 33 years. I understand that you are a member of that distinguished profession as well, Colby. I am. Um, I am a, an attorney that works on the state side here in Idaho. And I also serve uh, kind of as a recurring adjunct for the law schools around here. Well, great. So I've already introduced the subject, which is Mormonism and the rules of evidence. Now, the rules of evidence is something that needs little introduction to you or me or any other lawyer. However, I'm thinking that there may be people out there who are not lawyers listening to the show, and they could perhaps benefit from a description of what the rules of evidence are, mainly because as lawyers, when we go to court, there are certain rules that we have to follow in order to get evidence admitted into court, or in other words, heard by the jury or the judge, depending upon who the trier of fact is. And now I'm I'm geeking out with all the legal terminology, and I did not mean to do that. We're focusing on making this clear. The rules of evidence. Can you give us a thumbnail description of what those are and where they came from, Colby? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that the rules of evidence, I think one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation is the rules of evidence, like you just said, are the rules that govern what happens inside of courtrooms. I think the importance... Um, the importance and how it connects to why we wanted to have this conversation is because the rules of evidence have developed over several centuries, really. They're rules that we inha- inherited from, if you're American, they're rules that we inherited from our British cousins um, when we when we came over here um, and started the, the colonies here. And I think it's important to remember that they evolved over centuries, um, hundreds of years, to help people who are trying to determine fact. And so I think that in particular is why we wanted to have this conversation about how the rules of evidence 
and some other related legal concepts connect to especially the duty or the job of evaluating Mormon church history. Okay, really good. And from the lawyer's point of view, when we look at the rules of evidence, and we should, if we don't, pretty much have them memorized, because these are the tools that we use to get into evidence, what it is that we want to get into evidence. And on the other hand, hopefully we can use them to keep the other side from admitting evidence that we don't want them to admit, right? That's right. And as you say, hundreds of years, English common law codified in the rules of evidence. And the idea behind these rules is to keep out evidence that is not helpful to understanding or making a ruling on the issue that is in front of the court. I know sometimes juries get upset at the rules of evidence in that certain things are kept from the jury because of the rules of evidence. And specifically because hundreds of years of experience have shown us that there are certain information that the jury should not have in order to come to a just determination on whatever the issue is in front of them. And that there are certain information that if they had, they might make a decision for the wrong reason. Here I'm thinking in criminal law, if my client has certain convictions in their past and the jury doesn't find out about it until after they've rendered a verdict. So let's say they say not guilty in their verdict. My client goes free. There's great celebration and rejoicing throughout the courtroom, except at the prosecution table. And then the jury finds out, wait a second, this guy had this conviction for this thing 10 years ago or even five years ago. And I didn't know about it. I should have known about it because if I had known about it, that would have changed my decision in the jury room, right? I wouldn't have voted not guilty. I would have voted guilty, which is, of course, the whole reason you're not supposed to hear about it. Go ahead. What are you saying now? Well, and I was just going to say as a prosecutor, so that's another thing you and I have in common is that we both worked as prosecutors. Um, I no longer work in that capacity. But when I had, I have had that exact conversation with jurors um, calling them after the fact to see, you know, why they reached the decision that they reached. Um, I had one more complicated DUI with uh, or driving under the influence with experts involved. Um, where the individual, it was a young individual, but they had had a previous conviction. And so the, they were charged with driving under the influence for the second time, which is a separate crime. But that information that they've been convicted once before does not go in front of the jury until the jury makes the decision about whether they were driving under the influence that the time at issue. And so I remember having that phone call with a juror and explaining, you know, just, just trying to see as the prosecutor did they, what was it about the case that didn't convince them? Yeah, and how did you screw it up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's really just to get, it's really just to get feedback if you made mistakes so that you don't make them in the future. Right. Um, but yeah, I had that exact conversation with this juror uh, saying, yeah, this was this person's second offense. And the juror said, well, you didn't tell us that we, we were really close. We definitely would have convicted if, if uh, we would have known this was this individual's second offense. And I said, and that's the exact reason that you don't get to know that at that stage. This is one of the most common complaints that jurors have in my experience is not knowing about prior convictions of a person who's on trial for a crime. And like you said, that's exactly why you don't get to know about a prior conviction in a DUI case. If a person's on trial for a, a second DUI, because you're supposed to, as a jury, determine whether the person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt based upon the evidence that's in front of you relating to this charge. The fact that a person has a prior DUI has nothing to do with whether a person is guilty in this instance. 
And for lawyers who deal with this and have had, have had it drilled into them in law school for three years, like I did, believe me, it made no sense to me the first time I heard this back in 1986, I think it was when I was in my freshman year in law school at the University of Texas. But over time, I started to see the wisdom in it. And the example that you give is a classic instance of the wisdom in it. Yeah. And I think that's a good transition to really the first piece we wanted to talk about. So the rules of evidence and the interesting thing about the rules of evidence is at least in my state, most states. So there are federal rules of evidence that govern in federal court. So while the federal rules of evidence govern in federal court, most state courts have adopted more or less wholesale the federal rules of evidence. So they're more or less that's that's basically the rules we're going to use to talk about these ideas. But they should apply basically across all of the U.S. states that I've ever looked at their rules. So the first rule we wanted to talk about is Federal Rule of Evidence 404, and it prohibits what's called propensity evidence. So we basically just gave a great example of what propensity evidence is. Do you want to give any other further explanation about that, RFM? Just to describe propensity evidence and define it, which is if a person has a prior DUI and they're on trial for a DUI now, then the prior DUI would be what is considered propensity evidence. And it is not admissible as a general rule. Propensity evidence is not admissible because what you're saying is that the person did it one time, so it's more likely that they did it a second time. So propensity evidence of that sort is not admissible under Rule of Evidence 404. That's right. It's important to remember, though, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for lawyers and their arguments inside of court, is that there are exceptions to this rule that are codified at 404B. And so you'll often hear um, lawyers reference 404B if you're hanging around a courtroom because it, it comes in. I would say it's a pretty central issue in most criminal prosecutions. Um, if someone has at least some type of past history, you might have the prosecutor arguing that um, some past behavior falls inside of an exception. I guess it's important to note here while we talk about the exceptions that it doesn't just apply to strictly convictions. It applies to its its name is um, like past wrongs or other bad acts, if I remember correctly. And mm -hmm. so the idea is prior bad also, acts is what you're thinking of. That's right. Yeah. Prior bad acts. And so it can also um, these arguments can also be advanced just for non-charged behavior. It doesn't always have to be a conviction, I think is an important part to remember. Yes. And convictions are dealt with under a separate rule 609. Correct. So a good example and one that I think that non-lawyers can readily understand is if a person is, say, a serial killer and they have a certain modus operandi and the way that they commit their murders and they have certain signatures that are pretty much exclusive to those murders, whether it's how it's done, where it's done, usually in what manner, but it's something that makes it stand apart from other murders. Then under those circumstances, it is possible to get a prior bad act of a murder in, in a subsequent murder trial, not to show that the person has a propensity for committing murder, but to show that this modus operandi of the prior murder matches the modus operandi of the second murder, the one that's being tried for. And therefore, it is more likely that this person committed the second murder because of the signature 
of the first murder, which is identical to the second murder. Yeah, and I think it's important. I, I guess where I'd say the dividing line is between propensity, and of course, judges have to struggle with these decisions every day. But I think where the clear dividing line is between propensity and allowable 404B evidence is it has to do, in my view, with statistical probability. And what I mean is this idea of uh, 404B evidence really came out of English common law. It came out of an English case where there was a defendant who was charged with drowning his wife in the bath. And this defendant's defense was that the wife had fainted in the bath. Now, in this famous case, the state was allowed to show that the defendant had two other wives who had also died in the bath. And the allegation he had made in those cases was that they had also fainted in the bath. So what comes out of this case is what's known as the doctrine of chances. And the way I would sum it up for non-lawyers is just, it's really the idea of what are the odds of these statistically unlikely events stacked on top of each other? Mm. How, How likely are those things to happen? And so I think that really then leads us to How does this connect to Joseph Smith specifically? Okay. And what are you thinking of as to the relationship of this rule of evidence to Joseph Smith and Mormonism? Well, I had this um, thought enter my mind one night as I was sitting there thinking about all of the magic that Joseph Smith found in the area in which he lived. So here are just some some magical artifacts that I have compiled a list of that, you know, Joseph either touched or had interaction with. And I think this is how it connects is how likely is it that one individual could find all of these things. And so here, here's the list I've compiled. We have his seer stone. We have then the separately, the Urim and Thummim with the breastplate. We have the plates or several, you know, several different types of plates, depending on um, the account. We have the sword of Laban. We have the bones of Zelf the Lamanite and the arrowhead that was carried to Utah later. We have Adam's altar in Jackson County. We have the Abraham papyrus. We have related with that, a papyrus that was that Joseph attributed to Joseph out of Egypt. We have the Kinderhook plates. Then we have a visit from Peter, James and John, then John the Baptist, God and Jesus themselves. It really left me thinking, you know, it seems like Joseph Smith can't go outside without tripping over someone or some thing that's supernatural. And so I think the way it connects is the doctrine of chances essentially asks the fact finder to decide how likely is it that these unlikely events would have been stacked on top of each other. And so that's just something to think about. I think if it's okay at this point, I'd like to just kind of say why really what my goal is in having this type of conversation is I obviously Mormonism has been a big part of my life, a big part of forming the principles that I still want to live by. I think the reason I want to have conversations like this is just to help people who still want to believe. I want them to understand that people who may be in my shoes or your shoes, that logic and reason have really just made it difficult for them to continue believing that it's not something that they can just easily go back and fix. And so that's one of the reasons I think these types of conversations where we really lay it out and we think about it from a different perspective are important. I hear what you're saying. And I know that back in my TBM days, I would look at these things, these magical artifacts or meetings or visions or whatever you want to call them and how they stack up on top of each other. 
I would have thought that because one of them happened, the others are all more likely to be true as a TBM, right? If I have a testimony of one thing, then that testimony extends to everything else. But on the other hand, if you're looking at it through the rules of evidence, the fact that there is one thing that is very unlikely, any one of these things is very unlikely. I think we'd all agree. None of those have ever happened to me. I haven't tripped over a sword of Laban or found a skeleton of a white Lamanite, at least not that I can recall. So any one of these are very, very unlikely to have happened. But when you take one of those and you add another one, now you multiply their unlikeliness together. In other words, one doesn't make the other more likely. One makes the other less likely and exponentially so, because it's unlikely enough that a person is going to find one thing like this. It's much more unlikely that they're going to find two things like this. And then when you take three, you multiply those together Four, you do the same thing. And finally, when you've got this list of extraordinary magical artifacts, as you put it, that Joseph Smith encounters, finds, trips over, now it's astronomically unlikely that any of these are correct. Do you think I got the doctrine of chances analysis right there, Colby? I think that's exactly the point is, yeah, and to put some numbers behind it, just just to help people understand if, you know, I have a one in a hundred chance of finding a sword of Laban. And then I have a one in a hundred chance of finding also the skeleton of Zelf. And those are really low because it's definitely not one in a hundred. At that point, the odds of finding both of them or the same individual finding both of them is one in 10,000. If I did my math correctly. Well, it's uh, two zeros plus two zeros equals, yeah, 10,000. Yeah, I'm sure people listening to two lawyers who normally aren't known for being gifted at math do math live on the air will be fun. Well, the old saying is I went into law because I stink at math. Uh, Exactly. But you're right. The two zeros from the 100 and the two zeros from the other 100, if you multiply 100 times 100, all four zeros get represented with the one at the beginning. So it's 10,000. That's the rule I remember. That's right. And so I think if we look at all of these events stacked on top of each other, it just gets to the point where unless you're an individual who's had experiences with angels and with magical artifacts, I think one of the, the reasons I want to you know put forward this idea is just to help believers understand why their non-believing friends or family members have come to the conclusions that they do. That believing in this type of statistical improbability just gets really, really difficult. Um, By the time you put all those together, you've got a lot of zeros. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And I think just kind of to close the book on this idea of magical artifacts, um, I found a quote from William West um, from um, his work, a few interesting facts respecting the rise, pretensions and progress of the Mormons from 1837 And here's the quote. It says, is it possible that a record written by Abraham and another by Joseph containing the most important revelation that God ever gave to man should be entirely lost by the tenacious Israelites and preserved by the unbelieving Egyptians and by them embalmed and deposited in the catacombs with an Egyptian priest? I venture to say, no, it is not possible. It is more likely that the records are those of the Egyptians. And we know today that if we know today that Egyptologists can actually read the papyrus that Joseph Smith attributed to being the book of Abraham and that it has no relationship to Abraham in any way. Right. And I think this quote from William S. West is addressing a bit of a different issue. 
But if we bring it into what we're talking about, in other words, he's talking about how likely is it that the writings of Abraham would be on Egyptian documents. If we were to take that further with our analysis and say, and how unlikely is it that both of these roles, these papyrus rolls, the book of Abraham and the book of Joseph, get buried together with mummies that end up being found hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years later, and then making their way over to America, and then being transported to Kirtland, Ohio in 1835, so that they can be seen by Joseph Smith and purchased and translated. Because now that we've added all those other facts into it, it becomes even more unlikely, I think. Right, especially if you really know the story of how Michael Chandler came into possession of those mummies and artifacts and how, you know, there were a whole load of mummies and scrolls that were sold before he made his way to Kirtland, if I remember correctly. Yes. And so then at that point, it's you're just getting to this point where it's so unlikely. And I like I like how uh, Mr. West stitches together because I think many um, Mormons or many members of the church completely overlook the fact that there was also this role associated with Joseph by Joseph Smith in the same package. Um, I think that's, I can't remember if it was, I think it was an episode you did with David Bakavoy where he laid out how interesting it is that Joseph already had laid out his book of Moses. And then he, he clearly had this obsession with Egypt and with the three Israelite figures that we know are associated with Egypt. Moses, Abraham, and Joseph. Exactly. And so I think it's no accident that it was Abraham and Joseph that he attributed these scrolls to. Right. And looking at this from a bit of a different perspective with a different story, I know that most of the members of the audience know about Mark Hoffman, who is quite a gifted forger and managed to fool the church and a number of other people with his forgeries relating to early church history. There was at least one individual named Gerald Tanner, an anti-Mormon, who did not believe that Mark Hoffman could have found all of these. Let me back that up and say this. Gerald Tanner did not believe that these documents that were being produced or found by Mark Hoffman were authentic. He figured they were forgeries. And he basically did an analysis of the doctrine of chances. Because he said, what are the odds that one guy finds all of these early significant, important, and controversial documents. And he finally says, you know, finding one, that's amazing. Two is doubly amazing. And three and four, come on, come on. No one person is lucky enough to find all of these. This has got to be something other than legitimate. And that's why, one of the reasons why Gerald Tanner thought they were forgeries before anybody else did. And this is in the face of handwriting experts and document experts pronouncing them to be authentic. Yeah. And I think one of the very interesting things about that story of Gerald and Sandra's position on the Hoffman documents is that in many ways, the documents or the revelations coming out of those documents, they would have furthered Gerald and Sandra's goals in that they were difficult for the church to deal with. And yet still they took this position, I think, showing that they were committed really to following what they felt was the truth that the documents were not authentic. Right. And so this idea, this rule of evidence being the doctrine of chances that you have mentioned, I think that name might have been given to it by Wigmore, but I'm not going to bet my life on that. He was one of the gurus of evidence. It was either Wigmore or Blackstone, one of those two. Yes. So 
Let's go on now, if we can, if you said everything you want to say about that, to Rule of Evidence 106 regarding completeness of statements. Yeah, so this rule of evidence is what's known as the rule of completeness, as you just said. What it essentially allows, or what it's essentially designed to protect against, is what I call the ellipses problem that we often see in church manuals and in evaluating church history. What it provides is that if RFM and I are representing two sides of the lawsuit in court, and RFM wants to introduce a document or a witness statement to stand for some proposition, that then if I want to, as the other side of that lawsuit, I can introduce the entirety of that written or recorded statement. And what it's designed to protect against is um, one side of the lawsuit pulling a specific statement out of context. And so that's exactly what it's what it does is it allows for the other side to put the entirety of the document in front of the jury or the judge if he's the fact finder so that um, we have that level of protection. Right. If there's a document written by, let's say, a defendant, a statement by a defendant, and there's part of that statement that makes the defendant look guilty. And then there's another part of the statement that really makes the defendant look not guilty. The prosecutor does not get to go to the court and have admitted only that part of the statement that makes the defendant look guilty, although the prosecutor would probably like to do that. Once the prosecutor gets admitted or introduces an evidence that part that makes the defendant look guilty, and if the prosecutor does not do so, then the defense is allowed to introduce the part of that statement that makes the defendant look not guilty. Yeah, that's exactly right. And like like we've said, the entire protection or the entire concept behind this rule is that context matters. And so it's it's to, designed to protect against really snipping one tiny part of someone's statement out to make it look different than it would in completeness. Hence, you know, the rule of completeness. And so I think the connection with this rule and the church's behavior over how it, you know, how it's crafted its conventional narrative of its history is pretty obvious to anyone who's dealt with this for any amount of time. Um, The church has been guilty for a long time of creatively focusing on only parts of statements or records or even sentences that it likes for a very long time. And so there were three really that stood out to me as I was preparing um, for today. Um, One is attributed to Joseph Smith and the other two, uh, one's attributed to Emma and one's attributed to David Whitmer. So the first one that really stands out to me with Joseph himself is the church's recurring use of the happiness letter. So the happiness letter, um, if you haven't um, really dealt with the happiness letter before, you can read it today on Joseph Smith Papers Project. And I would really recommend listening to Jonathan Streeter's presentation of the happiness letter. I think it was from an old Sunstone presentation he had given several years ago. 2019. I was there. 2019. And I went to my first Sunstone just this year and RFM and I got to hang out there. Um, and it was I, great, wasn't it? It was great. And I got to give Sandra Tanner a hug. And let me tell you, for someone who stumbled upon some of Gerald and Sandra's work when I was in high school and thought that they were just the most corrupt anti-Mormons being able to run up and give Sandra Tanner a hug and thank her for her lifetime of work, trying to bring people to a more accurate version of Mormon history was quite the turnaround, uh, but also one of the, the pleasures of going to Sunstone this year. Yeah. So, so the happiness letter, the one that has the, the memorable phrase in it, happiness is the object and design of our existence. 
Yes. So that is the line that we hear quite often is that happiness is, is the object and design of our existence. And, and it will church. be the end thereof if we but follow the path that leads to it. And that path is then a bunch of, you know, uh, Boy Scout virtues, uh, cleanliness, chastity, bravery, honesty, you know, all those things and keeping all the commandments of God is how it ends. So that's the the one phrase from the happiness letter that gets used over and over again. In fact, back when I was a law student and living in, oh, what was it? Uh, it was marriage student housing at UT. I had a number of church posters up on the wall because believe me, I was all in. And we had this one poster that had Joseph Smith out in front of the Nauvoo Temple. And it had that quote from the happiness letter on it. So we've had the happiness letter in our home up on the wall for a number of years with that quote. And that's one of the reasons I, I know the quote so well, with the exception of that, that list of positive attributes that you're supposed to do in order to arrive at happiness. But the final, final one is in keeping all the commandments of God. If you keep all the commandments of God, then you will be happy. So what's wrong with that? Well, I think the context of the happiness letter is because that's what we're talking about here. This rule is designed to protect context. So the context behind the happiness letter is that it was a letter written by Joseph Smith to convince, I think at the time, 19-year-old Nancy Rigdon to participate in a polygamous relationship with him, um, which Nancy rejected. And so it's very interesting that you never hear about that context. But I would say even in the context of the letter itself, just standing on its own, it has some also pretty troubling implications um, about how whatever God commands is right, no matter what it is. So it really leans very heavily into, you know, the, the cosmological view of divine command theory, which is that God can command you to, and this is actually one of the examples from the letter, Joseph Smith lays out that God has said at sometimes thou shalt not kill, but at other times has said thou shalt utterly destroy. And so it has a lot of, to me, very troubling implications that it's been used over and over and over again by church leaders to stand for this one tiny proposition. When the rest of the letter, I'm not even sure the church would stand behind some of the teachings Joseph Smith is giving in the rest of the letter. Have you have you thought about that? Yes, I have, because one of the reasons is because we're going to do this show. First off, the main teaching of the church is that you follow the commandments and, of course, you're going to be happy. But when we're dealing with God, God himself is subject to law. God is not a capricious ruler who's going to violate his own commandments. Because in the Book of Mormon, it talks about God could cease to be God if he were unjust, or God could cease to be God if he violated the law. So even the Book of Mormon, the very early text in the, in the Mormon history of 1829, gives this idea that God is subject to law. But here, Joseph Smith gives a different view of God, which is God is not subject to law. God creates the law. And whatever God tells you to do is right, even if it's completely different from what he said to somebody else, even if that somebody else was Moses on Sinai in the Ten Commandments with the example you gave. And the thing that's really interesting about it is I know a number of times the church leaders have invade against the idea of moral relativism, that you don't get to choose for yourself what morality is. Morality is determined by God. But if God himself in the happiness letter is morally relative, then church leaders have a real problem 
Because according to Joseph Smith, I feel like what he's teaching here is moral relativism. He's not teaching it for the individual, but he's teaching it for God. And when a person talks for God, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference. Right. And that's where I think the background context then makes the letter go from troubling to slightly horrifying is when you realize that he's teaching this, you're right, this straight moral relativistic view. Then you run into the trouble of he's using that view to justify this extramarital relationship with a 19 year old. Um, and it, it posed a lot of difficulties, um, for, for Nancy and for Sydney both, I think, um, after this whole ordeal went down. Like I said, we could talk about the happiness letter probably for an entire podcast. And I know that because I've listened to multiple entire podcasts on the happiness letter. Um, but I think the principle or how this happiness letter connects to the principle we're talking about here, the rule of completeness is just to remember the context and that the context matters. I think like most LDS people, one of the things I often struggled with is the context behind the old Testament, the new Testament, the old Testament is always difficult because it's so foreign to us. The new Testament gets easier. The book of Mormon is easier still, but doctrine and covenants, particularly because of the way that it's organized was always so difficult for me to understand the context. And so I know that as I've put more effort into understanding it, as I continue to study Mormon history, there are sure a lot of problems. Uh, and the, the happiness letter is probably just one of those, I think, where you see it is awfully convenient that Joseph Smith is being told or putting in the mouth of God things that benefit Joseph Smith personally in some capacity. Yes, very much so. And, you know, at that time, Doctrine and Covenants had already been published, the original version, the 1835 version of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in it, there was Section 101, which said that the law of the church is one man and one woman in marriage, period, end of story. We don't practice polygamy. We have nothing to do with that. And part of that section was responding to those allegations that the church had practiced polygamy. So now Joseph Smith is trying to get Nancy Rigdon to be one of his plural wives, in spite of the fact that the book of scripture that he has been responsible for producing says, you can't do that. So how do you get around that? Well, you say, this is a specific commandment from God. And this specific commandment from God overrides what God said in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, which, by the way, if you don't know out there, it's not there anymore. So if you go to 101 now, it's not going to say that. This is the 1835 version, which I think was the section 101 up until 1876, if memory serves. But you've got this situation where you've got conflicting commandments. And this is a way to try and say it's okay, because whatever God commands is just. And you have to follow whatever God commands, i.e. getting married to me, Nancy Rigdon, in order to be happy, because that's part of keeping all the commandments of God. But it does occur to me as we're talking about this, Colby, that maybe the church has not gotten this far away from this kind of thing, because I think they do the same thing with the idea that only living prophets are to be listened to, and dead prophets don't really count anymore. And I think that gives them a generational, if not more frequent than just generational. Every time a new person becomes the president of the church, we can get rid of everything in the past simply by having the new president claim it to be a revelation. And not calling the church the Mormon church would be one of those. President Nelson says, we're not going to call it that anymore. That's a victory for Satan, in spite of the fact that the immediately prior prophets had no problem with it and indeed used it publicly and often and to their advantage. So, 
I'm not sure we're that far away from it now. What do you think of that, Colby? Well, I think that that is an excellent point. There was a dialogue piece I read from, I think, last fall's edition by Roger Terry. And this piece was called Getting the Cosmology Right. And what this piece examined was that Mormon leaders at various times, including the same leader, like Joseph Smith, they taught both what's called the divine command theory, which we're talking about, basically this idea that a current prophet can trump past commandments, past scripture, past prophets. And then the other theory is more of like a natural law theory. The idea that you you posited is taught in the Book of Mormon, which I completely agree with. It's taught in the Book of Mormon. It was my view as a Mormon, which is that law exists outside of God and that God used those laws to gain the position he has today. That was the position I think that Joseph Smith took later in his life um, in discourses like the King Follett discourse. And it's also, you noted the verse, I think in Alma about the reality that God could cease to be God. I know it's also, this idea is also taught in Doctrine and Covenants 93, where I think the scriptures lay out that um, truth acts independently. So my thought on this is that it is a great thread to try and research. Um, and we probably can talk about it when we get down to prior inconsistent statements or, you know, organizations taking inconsistent positions. But to me, it's another one of these areas where Mormonism, conventional Mormonism has taught two conflicting and mutually exclusive things. And you're required to believe both of them at the same time. Um, that's really my the sum of my thoughts on the topic. Yes, looking at it historically, I think we can see it in the Book of Mormon in 1829. And I know what you're talking about, the King Follett Discourse, where God, finding himself in the midst of spirit, saw that it was a good idea to allow them and help them to progress to becoming like he is by doing the same things that he did, right? So there's a law that he follows to progress and become as God. But that's 1829, Book of Mormon, 1844, King Follett Discourse. And in between the two, we've got this happiness letter, which says the opposite, which makes me think that Joseph Smith sometimes used theology, not only creatively, but pragmatically. He would bend the theology in order to accomplish his immediate goals, which in this case was betting Nancy Rigdon. That's absolutely true of Joseph. You know, it's I think it's in 1830 when Hiram Page starts having visions in his black seer stone that we see the same level of pragmatism where all of a sudden, you know, kind of going back to our idea of doctrine of chances, how likely is it that the second someone else really gives a legitimate challenge to Joseph's revelatory abilities and ability to lead the church? How likely is it then that it's at that exact moment and no earlier that God, you know, or Joseph putting in the mouth of God says, oh, you know, you can't command him who is at thy head. There's only one to receive revelation in this church, and it's Joseph Smith. Right. Now, you had also mentioned Emma Smith. So we're talking about the general subject of Rule 106, Evidence Rule 106, about complete statements. In other words, you put in one thing, then the other party's allowed to put in the rest in order to give the full picture. You also mentioned something about Emma Smith. Yeah, so let's talk about the final testimony of Emma Smith. So this final testimony is an interview between Emma Smith and her son, Joseph III. Can you give some background on what Joseph III was up to at that exact moment, just a sentence or two? Well, I think that what Joseph, you're talking about Joseph Smith III. Correct. Okay, and it's 1879, I believe. Well, Emma is about, she's very old at this point. She's about to pass away, and what he wants to do is get her 
beliefs, her thoughts, her experiences, her testimony on the record for future generations. And of course, one of the main things that's of concern to Joseph Smith III, being the president now of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the big split happening over polygamy, and the fact the reorganized did not believe in polygamy, and did not believe that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, that's the thing that distinguishes the two churches. The thing that binds them is their belief in the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon and all the stories that go along with that. So what ends up happening, coincidentally enough, is that when Joseph Smith III talks to his mom, Emma Smith completely testifies to the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, and Emma Smith completely denies that Joseph Smith ever practiced polygamy. Yeah, and so I think the important thing from the stance of the rule of completeness is there are two statements I see very often as I looked in some past church manuals. Um, I see two statements that come out of Emma's final testimony. I think it was published in Utah under the name of like the final testimony of Sister Emma or something along those lines. Um, but here are the two statements. So the first is um, in response to a question from Joseph III, Emma states that your father can neither write nor dictate a coherent or well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. And we hear this trope trotted out all of the time um, in apologetics, that it was completely impossible for Joseph to write such a book. Now, the second statement is um, regarding the sources that Joseph Smith had available to him while he was writing the Book of Mormon. So in no response, papers. that's right. So the, the statement was that he had neither manuscript nor book to read from. Now, I think the important thing when we go to the rule of completeness is the church has relied on these parts of the statements or these specific statements in Emma's total statement while completely ignoring that there are demonstrated lies that Emma tells about polygamy. So she denies that um, Joseph had anything to do with it, that there was no such thing as spiritual wifery. I think aside from what she attributed to John C. Bennett, if I remember correctly, um, she said that there was no revelation on either polygamy or spiritual wives and that it would have been contrary to the will of heaven. She stated that Joseph had no other wife but me, nor did he, to my knowledge, ever have. And we know that those statements are false um, at this point. Right. And I know that there are certain people who are members of the church who believe that that's true, and they'll trot this out for that purpose. But let's go with it from the point of view of the LDS church right now, okay? Because I think that makes it cleaner. The LDS church teaches... And based upon a lot of evidence, now that Joseph Smith did practice polygamy, and now they've been put to the task of putting out a church essay on the subject to document that fact, Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. So what does it say then for a church that believes Joseph Smith practiced polygamy to take Emma's last testimony and quote from it only those couple of sentences related to the production of the Book of Mormon? that it believes the members will find faith promoting. Right. Because there is one last statement I wanted to hit on, which is that Emma in this statement, she's asked about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And she states that um, she mentions Joseph, quote, sitting with his face buried in his hat with the stone in it dictating hour after hour. And that's the end of the quote. So I find it very interesting that it, you know, you, you could attribute to Emma this desire to protect her son from polygamy. You can attribute to her um, 
the motive of trying to protect the reorganized church, which today is the community of Christ. But one of the things I find very telling about the way the church is used and the statement is that they did not teach about the seer stone being the way and the rock in the hat account of the coming forth of the book of Mormon for generations. And yet this is, this is right here in Emma's last testimony and the church ignored it until I think what the 1970 friend article. They've certainly ignored it for a long, long time. And even today when they quote from this on the church's website, I've seen them do the same thing where they just quote these parts about the book of Mormon being that uh, no manuscript or papers and the fact that he would dictate for hours. He didn't have to have it read back to him when he came back from a break. I think that's in there as well. And also that he couldn't, he couldn't write a well-composed letter, much less a book like the book of Mormon. That's what we get. And that's all we've gotten for over a century. I would say about a century. That's all that we got. We still get it today in spite of the fact that the church essay is up on the church website, or at least I should say buried three clicks deep on the church website. The stuff that isn't three clicks deep, you'll still find this use of her statement. So we've got the one thing where they're using just these one or two or three statements from her testimony about the Book of Mormon, and they have left out the part about the stone in the hat and Joseph Smith with his face in the hat. And they've done that for many, many, many years. And as I said, they continue to do that on the church website. So the rule of completeness would be that you have to include those other things as well in order for the jury or the member to get a complete picture of what it is that's going on. The other thing that... Go ahead. I was going to say that's exactly right. I was going to... I was going to just connect this to David Whitmer. But if you have another statement about Emma, go ahead. I do, because the church now will sometimes use that expression from her. They do in the church essay, the expression about Joseph Smith having his face in the hat. All of a sudden now they discovered this. Let's go back and state the obvious. If you have a testimony from someone, a declaration from someone, which really isn't that long in the first place, and you're going to quote snippets out of it, You can't quote snippets out of a statement unless you know everything that's in the statement in the first place. That's where the obvious hiding comes in and the suppression of the other statements by the church that the church doesn't want the members to know. But even now that they've come to the point where, at least in the essay, they will quote to this hitherto unquoted statement by Emma Smith about Joseph Smith sitting there with his rock rock in the hat. Uh, That sounds vaguely bawdy. But anyway... They will quote that now, but they still will not quote the part about her saying that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy and I was his only wife. So they're still playing the same game, just with a different part of the document. And the reason they don't want to say that, and this is why I went into the part about, look look at it from the church's point of view, is because the church wants you to believe Emma. They want you to take what she says in her testimony as truth. But from the church's point of view, Joseph Smith definitely practiced polygamy, and Emma is wrong, or dare I say, lying about this part. She's manifestly incorrect, and most likely lying about this part. She's definitely wrong, but I don't want to get into all the the stuff that was going on in her very troubled life and her mind in order to make her justify this, okay? That's why I'm hesitant on using the word lying, but she's definitely wrong. So the church doesn't want to include that part. Because if you can see that Emma in this relatively short document is wrong about such a big thing as Joseph Smith practicing polygamy, on what basis are you going to think she's right 
about the Book of Mormon translation. Yep, that's exactly that's exactly the point is that the church will want you to believe Emma for some of the statements and to not believe Emma for others of the statements, but they won't they won't even make that explicit. I would say to really if they were if they really believed in this principle of the rule of completeness and giving people full agency, informed consent, they would at least tell you that Emma's statement in you know, includes multiple, like you said, misstatements. I, I have a hard time also, you know, denigrating Emma. I think what she went through was so difficult, um, having been married to Joseph. But it definitely shows that the church narrative that you and I received, that there was someone picking and choosing what parts of her statement fit into their narrative and what parts did not. And they're still to that day doing this. And they also do that with David Whitmer. And that was how we wanted to connect the two. Okay, so this is the third and final example of the church not giving us the completed statement of different individuals. Yeah, that's right. So the church's website today says that along with Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, David Whitmer was shown the plates by an angel and heard the voice of God command them to testify of what they had seen. Unfortunately, David left the church a few years later and never returned, but he never denied his testimony. By the way, can I just say something right here? I know this isn't the point you're making. I hear this all the time, especially with the witnesses, because it's always amazing that they left the church, but they never denied their testimony. And indeed, in some cases, reaffirmed it later in life after their departure from the church. I have never, to my recollection, when it comes to the three witnesses, read a church correlated publication such as this. Talk about the reason why they left. Yeah, that is that would be an entire different podcast. I know that Dan Vogel, I think, has a two or three part series on his YouTube channel about the three and then the eight witnesses. But it's it's interesting. You know, I've listened, obviously, over the course of the last year and a half or, or two years, really, since I've been questioning. I've listened to a lot of apologetics and There are many apologists who say that the witnesses are the strongest evidence for the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and the church because they never denied. To me, even before we get into the details of the the culture they were coming from, which was this treasure digging folk magic, you know, culture and the problems with why they left the church. To me, there have been people who have sworn to the truth of many different religious movements. And so I really don't find the witnesses testimony to me, all that convincing. It's interesting that there are many church apologists who feel like this is the strongest piece in the churches, like in their defense of the church. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Well, I certainly think there's something to be said for that. Uh, The main thing that I want to get at though, and I did do a podcast on this a number of years at Radio Free Mormon, is that there are certain discrete set of individuals who left the church in early church history that we talk about. And we talk about the reasons they left, and we talk about them frequently. And one of them is Simon's writer over the misspelling of his name. And another is Thomas Marsh over the milk stripping story. So the stories that we tell about church individuals leaving the church, the ones that we tell, we do it in such a way as to show how stupid they were for leaving the church. And as I put it before, the only reason that people leave the church is for stupid reasons. Therefore, the unstated conclusion is, If you leave the church, it's because you're stupid. So in light of those, in light of that background, this is sort of a meta conversation about a complete statement, right? In light of that background that we know that they talk about people who leave the church, when they can frame their leaving as being stupid, 
What does it say when they talk about people who leave the church, but never talk about why they left? Yeah, that is a very, very good point. Yeah, it's it's um, obvious to me that the reason, even if I don't know what the reason is, and I kind of do, but from that alone, I can conclude that the reason that David Whitmer left the church is not so easily frameable as something that was stupid. And actually, it might be problematic for the church to go into it, and therefore they don't. Right. And I think David and Oliver both, you get a you get the same um, not telling the story with why both David and Oliver left. And interestingly, it's essentially the same thing. It's the advent of polygamy, although David adds a lot more detail to the reasons why he left. Yeah. So you're getting to this point where the church frequently includes in their materials this quote from David Whitmer. Yeah. So let me read that quote. So and this, again, even the lead into this quote is from the church's website today. Yeah, they have like these new church history topics. Um, and I think as part of a publication of the Leahona in 2021, they they had this piece called Who Was David Whitmer? And so it cites to their page that describes kind of like Dave, who David Whitmer was. And they've they've added these new like church history topics, which aren't part of the essays, but they did come, I think, after the essays, kind of, kind of trying to explain some other like hot button issues in Mormonism. Like I know they have a page on Jane Manning James, and for example. So from, from the church's website, it says near the end of his life, David wrote, quote, I have never at any time denied that testimony or any part thereof, which has so long since been published with the Book of Mormon as one of the three witnesses. Those who know me best well know that I have always adhered to that testimony and that no man may be misled or doubt my present views in regard to the same. I do again affirm the truth of all my statements as then made and published. And that is from David Whitmer's 1887 publication and addressed to all believers in Christ. So the church will give you that sentence, but they definitely don't want to give you the rest of that pamphlet, which unlike Emma's statement, which I think was like one between one and three pages, David Whitmer's publication is actually, it's not, you could read it in, you know, an hour, but it's, it's actually more substantial uh, because he lays out a lot of um, his own personal theology. But so the church is going to give you this statement and they're going to want to ignore statements on their very, from the very same page. Before you get to that, that same page of the statement, yeah. before you get to that, I just wanted to say that looking at this logically, which I may be doing for the first time, I, as an apologist, always focused on the fact that they left the church, but never denied their testimony. But when you read that testimony again from his his pamphlet and address to all believers in Christ from 1887, David Whitmer. All that does to me now is raise the question. Well, if you still have a testimony of the book of Mormon, why aren't you still a member of the church? Yeah. And that's the, that is one question I wish that I could just, you know, jump to another timeline and talk to David Whitmer really quickly. Yeah. Um, I think this, there, this pamphlet may have been actually his attempt to answer that question. What do you think? I think that's correct. Yeah, I think that he really felt that the church, I know if you read the pamphlet in its entirety, which I have done, that his basic position is that the church had apostatized from the true gospel, which was contained in the Book of Mormon. And so it's not surprising to me that he's still willing to swear to the Book of Mormon, but isn't in favor of where the church had gone down the road. Because remember, by the time this is coming out in 1887, it's not even like Joseph is in charge anymore, right? Brigham's right. in charge, or actually probably Brigham is dead at this point, right? Yes, he in passed away 10 years before in 1877. Right. So we have a lot of innovations that have changed between the church that 
David Whitmer joined and that was organized in 1830 and where the church is at in 1887. Yes. So but we know that the, he left the church in 18, in the 1830s. I think it was around 1838 or so. So he I left the church when right. Joseph Smith was still the president. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. I wish we could, I wish we could talk to many of these, you know, figures that were monumental in early church history because we have so many statements attributed to them or so many stories attributed to them that aren't in their own words. A good example is also another one of the witnesses, Martin Harris. Um, the whole ordeal with the Anthem transcript, uh, most members probably don't realize the story we have recorded is what happened between Martin and Anthem. It's Joseph's version of events. It's not Martin's. So Martin had already left the church at, the, at that point. And so Joseph is able to completely craft the narrative on his own, but that's a, that's a separate issue. So, right. And to be clear of the timeline, and I don't want to get you off too far. And I was going to bring you back. So Joseph Smith is writing the history of the visit of Martin Harris to Charles Anton, which would have happened in 1828. I think he's now writing that 10 years later in the 1838 church history. Right. Right. As Martin is basically leaving the church, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But as I say, we're getting off the (laughs) script and I apologize for that because that's my fault. No, that's okay. It's an interesting thing to think about. But so going back to that same statement or to David Whitmer's publication addressed to all believers in Christ. So the church gives you this one narrative that he's never denied his testimony of the Book of Mormon. On that very same page, I want to read this quote from David Whitmer. I do not endorse polygamy or spiritual wifeism. It is a great evil, shocking to the moral sense, and the more so because practiced in the name of religion. I do not endorse any of the teachings of the so-called Mormons of Latter-day Saints, which are in conflict with the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as taught in the Bible and Book of Mormon. And Book of Mormon. And and Book Book of of Mormon. Mormon. Yes. Mm -hmm. For the same gospel is taught plainly in both of these books, as I understand the word of God. And so reading that quote back does, I think, confirm what I was saying earlier, that David Whitmer was willing to reaffirm his testimony of the Book of Mormon because he really believed that the Book of Mormon and the Bible worked together to teach the same gospel. It was after that point that he had problems. Yes. And he felt that Joseph Smith became a fallen prophet, at least with the advent of plural marriage, if not before. That's right. So some other statements, I'm not going to read more quotes from Whitmer's um, publication, but I would tell people to go read it themselves. Some other issues that Whitmer notes in his publication is that he also mentions the seer stone in the hat. And that's like we've already talked about, a narrative that the church hid for generations. He also specifically claims that Joseph Smith fell into error, like many of those that God had chosen. I think he probably connects to the idea of like David and Solomon. And then he also draws attention to the problems with the priesthood restoration accounts. And so for those who aren't familiar, the essential idea is that while Joseph and Oliver attribute the restoration of the priesthood to miraculous events in 1831, do I have that? Or 1829 for the, um, for the, I think it's 1829 for both, isn't it? Yes. May 15th, 1829, John the Baptist. And then that's right. Around three weeks later, Peter, James and John. That's right. 1831 was lingering in my mind because it's in 1831 that Joseph is ordained to the high priesthood by, is it Hiram page or it's some other figure in church history, but. Well, 1831 is when the voice of God comes and is heard bestowing the Melchizedek priesthood. That's right. And commanding the ordination of one person to another to that priesthood. 
That's right. And it's in 1835 that, that, that those stories, the story of Peter, James and John and John the Baptist really start to gain traction. I think it's actually after 1835 because it wasn't in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants, if I remember correctly. Well, here's what happens. Okay. So 1833, the Book of Commandments is published. And in the Book of Commandments, there's no mention of Peter, James and John. But then in 1835, of course, there was a problem with the Book of Commandments in the mob, July 4th, 1833, I think it was, and burning the printing press that uh, Edward Partridge, I think, was in charge of. But regardless, so they have a problem with getting those out, and that's why they're so expensive today, right? And the story of the two girls carrying the, the manuscript pages from the printer's office and running out into the cornfield. Okay, so, but that same revelation that doesn't mention Peter, James, and John is then published in 1835 in the Doctrine and Covenants first edition. That's section 27, by the way, in the Doctrine and Covenants. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this revelation, which is carried over from the 1833 Book of Commandments, all of a sudden now, there's a paragraph of verses that delineate Peter, James, and John as restoring the Melchizedek priesthood. So that's a very strange thing. It seems to be coming up late, and indeed... David Whitmer has something to say about that subject, right? That's exactly right. And so thank you for reminding me on all that background. Uh, sure. the, the dates sometimes run together on all these different issues. The bottom line here is that David Whitmer indicates that that was a problem. He indicates that he had not heard about angelic visitations toward, towards Oliver and Joseph um, until 1835. And by angelic visitations, I just mean the whole story of the priesthood restoration um, with the visit of Peter, James, and John and John the Baptist. Right. He, and we should he, probably focus on Peter, James, and John because right. John the Baptist is a bit of a different animal. Right. I think that there's evidence that Joseph Smith claimed an angelic appearance, but he didn't get identified as John the Baptist until much right. later. And Peter, James, and John are totally off the grid with the Melchizedek priesthood. Apparently, the Melchizedek priesthood is received in 1831 by a different method than Peter, James, and John. And then later on, a few years, all of a sudden, Peter, James, and John are now being talked about by Joseph Smith. And this is one of the things that David Whitmer had a problem with. I think it's also a thing that Thomas Marsh had a problem with, that they didn't hear anything about Peter, James, and John, even though they were involved in the movement. And they talked with Joseph Smith and they listened to Joseph Smith constantly because he's their prophet. But they didn't well, hear Joseph Smith say anything about Peter, James and John until around five years after 1829. Well, and the idea that it, and again, this kind of goes back to our it's interesting how all these things connect. But going back to our idea of doctrine of chances, if you look at the testimony of the three and the eight witnesses, there are more Whitmers than anyone. Else. There's almost more. I think there's more Whitmers than Smiths, if I remember correctly. Because Oliver Cowdery was a, a, he was married to one of the Whitmer sisters. And so the idea basically that these visitations could have happened and that David Whitmer wouldn't have heard of them, it just seems so ludicrous to me because he was so intimately connected. Wasn't the church itself organized in the Peter Whitmer senior home? It was uh, in the Whitmer log cabin. Yes. That's right. So the idea that, you know, these events would have happened. And these people who were so central to the movement would have never heard about it until at that point, I think he was saying, I hadn't heard about it until 1835. It just seems so far-fetched to me. So that's another part from David Whitmer, the third example, where we've got even on the same page that the church quotes him in support of the Book of Mormon, the church refuses to quote him regarding 
his feelings about polygamy. Yeah, polygamy, the rock in the hat, and also the problems with Joseph's calling. So moving beyond the rules of evidence now to just a general legal concept. So I told you and you know that I work the state side of being a lawyer, which means that oftentimes I get to help elected officials or appointed officials administer the law. Um, the people in the executive branch and the, you know, the administrative agencies, they have a lot of work to do trying to figure out how to make sense of all this different law and these different rules. One of the most important tools that I have are what lawyers call the canons of construction. And that's just a fancy word for saying the rules we apply when we're reading statutes or court rules. And one of the most central rules, at least here in Idaho, different states have different approaches. But one of the most central rules of reading statute is the idea of the plain meaning rule. So the plain meaning rule is really just that words mean what they would mean in common, you know, in common vernacular, unless uh, there's some different statutory definition given. Do you have a lot of experience with the plain meaning rule or, or do you have something analogous in Washington? Oh, absolutely. There's lots of different rules and they're basically almost grammatical rules for reading statutes because what the courts do, they are charged with interpreting the statutes that the legislature has written. So in some ways, they're going to treat these, I'm not going to say a scripture, but kind of like because what their goal is, is to give effect to what the legislature, the representatives of the people, right? What the legislature has written in the law and their goal is to give effect to it and try and discern what it is that the legislature meant when they wrote this law. And that's where these rules of construction come in. First off, there's the plain meaning rule, right? It seems to be absolutely clear, but believe it or not, legislatures can sometimes write things that are not completely clear. And then the courts have to come in to interpret them in light of the statute itself and how it relates to other statutes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And oftentimes, not only do courts have to do that, but in my uh, in my career, I've worked for administrative agencies, and oftentimes administrative agencies are the first level of having to interpret these statutes and really give effect to, like you said, what the legislature has written. And so these rules get applied just like you would if you were like a mini judge, right? The The administrative agencies have to make these same types of decisions. So the reason that I wanted to talk about the plain meaning rule is this idea of reification. And the idea of reification is when a group takes a word that has a very common meaning and they apply a very specific definition to it. They change the meaning of that word over time. And I think one of the things we're seeing recently with uh, Mormon apologetics is a lot of reification. So the one I wanted to start by talking about is translation. So what issues have you seen in the redefinition or creating some special Mormon definition of what the word translation means? Well, I'll start out with the basics that when I joined the church in 1978, it was very plainly taught that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon from Reformed Egyptian that was on the gold plates into what we have today as the English Book of Mormon. And it was also very clearly taught that when it came to the papyri, Joseph Smith translated the Egyptian characters that were on the papyri into the Book of Abraham. So that's where I started. It was simply a translation. We're using translation the way it is commonly used. Right. But then over time, 
especially with the book of Abraham. So we'll probably focus there where it has become really unavoidably obvious that Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham has nothing to do with the papyrus from which he claimed to translate it. Now we have to do something if we're an apologist or a church member who wants to continue to believe that the book of Abraham is inspired. Joseph Smith said he translated it. We now know that the translation doesn't match the papyri itself. So what's a girl going to do? You got to change the meaning of the word translation. Yeah, that's right. And I think you see this a lot with the gospel topic essay on the book of Abraham. They try and make, it's an interesting apologetic tactic I've seen a lot lately. Um, you and Bill, I think, did a real or a Mormonism live episode about um, games apologists play. And I saw this at issue, or I saw this exhibited a lot in that episode, where apologists try and make everything unknowable, kind of going to this idea of it's interesting the church speaks so out against moral relativism so much because sometimes the apologetics end up back at the same place. Um, but they, they essentially try and make everything unknowable and then just tell you to really lean on your emotion. Didn't you feel good when you read the book of Mormon? Didn't you, you know, they kind of lean on those types of things. And if I remember right in that episode, you were breaking down a talk by Jared Halverson, kind of a new and upcoming person that the church is, is taking around on a lot of these like firesides for people who are in faith crisis or faith transition. So anyways, as we go back to the book of Abraham gospel topic essay, the church claims, quote, many people saw the papyri, but no eyewitness account of the translation survives, making it impossible to reconstruct the process. Now, in my opinion, having put a lot of time into the book of Abraham, probably nowhere near as much as you have, but it was really the first issue that I studied in depth. That statement is only true for those who are unwilling to really follow where the evidence goes. So Warren Parrish wrote that, quote, I have set, and he means sit, I've sit by his side and penned down the Egyptian hieroglyphics as he claimed to receive it by direct inspiration from heaven. Now, this letter from Warren Parrish was written in 1838, mid-translation, as he was trying, as Warren Parrish was trying to convince people of what we now know are the fraudulent works of Joseph Smith. And so what Warren Parrish's letter lays out is, I think, a much clearer line um, of translation, the way that you were taught when you joined the church. Now we see a lot of redefinition of what translation means. The Gospel Topics essay on the Book of Abraham, there's a lot of issues to talk about with that, but particularly this one about um, the catalyst theory. How, how do you see that as connecting to this idea of redefining translation? Oh, I think it's part and parcel of it. And it stems from the same problem, which is that when you conclude, as the evidence suggests strongly, that Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham has nothing to do with what was actually written in Egyptian on the papyrus, then if you still want to believe, I mean, most people would say, well, then it's obviously not a real translation. It's a fraud is what we would call it generally. But if you still want to believe it's inspired, then translation has to change and it has to become much broader. And then you bring in the catalyst theory, which is basically that Joseph Smith got a hold of these papyri. And we agree that they have nothing to do with the book of Abraham. But Joseph Smith's prophetic creativity was galvanized just by the possession and the sight of these papyrus or papyri, such that he received a revelation from God that was true and accurate. And that's what 
is the book of Abraham, the revelation from God that Joseph Smith received because he was catalyzed by the presence of the papyri. And that's how they explain the book of Abraham still being true and yet having nothing to do with what was on the papyrus. Right. And so, you know, to really lay that out, I think from I think you've laid out the way the gospel topics essay lays it out and maybe a faithful member who espouses that view would lay it out to state the little more critically. I think I would say taking that view requires you to believe that Joseph Smith can be absolutely misinformed about the substance of what he's looking at and think he's doing some pro you know, some process and be completely misinformed about what that process is. But what still comes out of the end of that is still legitimate scripture. And that just, that seems so problematic from my view to say that Joseph can be incorrect about what he was doing. He can be incorrect about the underlying substance, but yet what still comes out the end is legitimate scripture. I'm just not willing to go there. Right. It's a desperate theory. Yeah. It came out of desperate circumstances because as I've said before, the catalyst theory can save the inspiration of the book of Abraham in spite of the facts. The problem is, is that it makes the book of Abraham indistinguishable from an intentional fraud on Joseph Smith's part. They both look exactly the same, a fraud or the catalyst theory. All the evidence supports either. And the question then is, which is most likely? Well, the catalyst theory is incredibly unlikely because then they run into the problem, as you're hinting at, that the fact is that Joseph Smith claimed he was translating it just the way we use the word translation today. And it's the way we use translation when I joined the church that he's doing a word-for-word, language-to-language translation. He's not talking about a catalyst theory. So if the catalyst theory is correct, then as you said, Joseph Smith had to be completely deluded, misguided, incorrect, because he thinks he's actually translating it from the Egyptian, but he's not. That has to be part and parcel of the catalyst theory too. So then you're left with the conclusion that Joseph Smith was completely wrong about how he was translating the Book of Abraham But everything in the book of Abraham that he translated is nevertheless completely right. That's right. And I think the other problem about the Gospel Topics essay is that it just also ignores a lot of the evidence. So one of the statements that it quotes um, later on in the essay, uh, it's attributed to W.W. Phelps, but he said, quote, as no one could translate these writings, they were presented to President Smith and he soon knew what they were. And you see that that view, which, and that statement is right in the gospel topics essay today. So then for the gospel topics essay near the top of it to say, it's impossible to reconstruct this process because we don't know what translation means. That's essentially the position it's taking. To me, it's just not an intellectually honest position. Um, I think the church would probably be better served with just decanonizing the book of Abraham and walking away from it. I think but they seem to be unwilling to decanonize anything at this point. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that they are stuck with what they're stuck with, that they've been calling it scripture for so long and a translation for so long that all they're going to do is continue to have it as scripture, but they're going to change the use of the term translation. They're going to change the definition. I think that in logic, this is also called shifting the definition of a term. So if you can shift the definition of a term, that ends up being like a straw man because you're now not talking about what the original person was talking about. You're using the same language to talk about it, but you have silently shifted the term so that now you can still avow what the first person talked about while using it in a completely different way. Not completely a straw man, but I think there's some overlap there as well. 
Well, it's definitely fallacious because what we're seeing, and I think you nailed it there, is Joseph definitely thought Joseph was translating. And you can see that. And when I say translating, I mean actually translating, the typical definition of translating. If you told Joseph Smith, if, if we could you know, bring him back from the dead for a second and tell him, your church today says that you were mistaken, but still receiving revelation in some way. I don't think he would agree with that at all, nor would Warren Parrish or W.W. Phelps. And it's interesting that those statements exist and the church wants to keep what comes out the end, but doesn't want to deal with the ramifications of everyone involved with this translation project, seeing it in a completely different way from the church wants to today. Yeah, there's actually a famous quote on this from Lewis Carroll's Adventures in... No, it's actually not Adventures in Wonderland. It's Through the Looking Glass. And it's a quote from Humpty Dumpty. And I never would have known about this except for my friend Daniel C. Peterson, who is, of course, the godfather of Mormon apologetics. Here's the quote dealing with changing definitions. And this is Humpty Dumpty. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice in response, the question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. And Humpty Dumpty corrects her. The question is, which is to be master? That's all. And I think that what he means by that is the question is who's going to be the master of the definition? And that's all. So if you're the master of the definition and you get to determine what a a word's definition is, well, you win every argument. Well, that is a great transition to the second example I had in mind of this. Um, and I actually have a third one that we, uh, I'll just talk about it quickly. But the second one is the use of tithing funds. So President Hinckley was the president really that I remember um, growing up like as a teen. And he had stated, I think when asked about City Creek and the church's involvement in City Creek, that not $1 of tithing money was used to fund that purchase, I think is the quote. And it's important. Important to know, I think, that I would not say that President Hinckley was lying when he made that statement because he was applying in this, you know, to go along with your Humpty Dumpty quote from from Carol, he's applying a definition of what tithing money is that he knows. And so I don't think he's lying, but he was being very misleading. As I've dealt more with the church's press releases over the last year, I actually think they are a masterclass in misleading people while not technically lying. And I think this is another example of where leaders of the church don't apply the plain meaning rule. They use some hidden definition that they don't tell the members. It's not like President Hinckley said, we didn't use tithing money. And by not using tithing money, I mean, yeah, we used tithing money from years gone by and interest earned off of that tithing money, which is the reality of the situation. What do you think about that? And do you feel like that's misleading? Oh, absolutely. It's intentionally misleading. If it were not intentionally misleading, they would tell you what definition they're using. But they know that the audience is assuming one definition, which is usually the straightforward definition, the one that's always been used. And now they're going to give a secret definition to what it is they're talking about in order to try and mislead the audience. And I don't know. If that's better than lying or worse than lying, because arguments could be made either way. Obviously, the speakers think it's not as bad as lying, but I think I could see it as being worse than lying. Yeah, 
either way, it's misleading. I don't know if it's better or worse. I think I think they're both just part and parcel. It's more clever, I guess, than lying. That's what makes it worse, I think, because it takes so much more craft right. and premeditation to right. mislead or equivocate like President Hinckley did. Well, the contemporary example I'd give you, and this is just the third one, and it's not in the notes. And so it's because it's developed since we first started talking about this idea is all the church's apologetics around the Arizona Bisbee sex abuse case. I have reviewed every single document that's publicly available. And, you know, my wife and I did a, for those who don't know, the big reason that my wife and I left the church is the church's handling of sex abuse cases. And so I was following this very closely and reading the documents themselves. And I was just absolutely horrified at the way the church's first and second press releases after Mike Resendez's story broke in, was that in August that it broke? Just a few months ago. Yeah. I was absolutely horrified at the way the church wasn't technically lying, but was being extremely misleading. And the reason that that really troubled me is because people believe them. People that I love believe them. And that really, really bothered me. That's probably another example of this same idea where they're applying hidden definitions to things. Um, right. And without- it goes back to Joseph Smith, who was saying, "We I don't practice plural marriage, but that's because he is secretly saying, no, what we practice is celestial marriage. Right. And so I think as wholesale, I think this practice of applying private definitions to something, if you're going to apply a non-standard definition of a term, and that's how it connects to the plain meaning rule. If you're going to apply a non-standard definition, you need to tell people that's the only way that they can know what you really mean by what you're saying. That's called communication. Right. Right. And so I know a lot of people have a certain idea about lawyers, and some of it may be correct, and some of it may be incorrect. But I just want to go over with you. What would happen to a lawyer who engaged in this kind of activity, this misleading activity in court in front of a judge? Because I think lots of people think that lawyers are out there just trying to outsneak or outmaneuver each other. And there may be some truth to that. But when you get in front of a judge and you try and pull this kind of stunt, what's going to happen? Yeah, I have seen lawyers get read the riot act by judges um, who they do not appreciate it. Attorneys have a duty of candor to the court, to candor to the tribunal. And sometimes they're placed in the difficult position where they have competing loyalties. They have a duty to the court to keep their bar license. They're an officer of the court, but they also have to zealously represent their client's interests. And so if an attorney were to do the same exact thing that I think I've seen the church doing over and over again, I don't think that person would have a bar license for very long. That's my opinion. I I agree with you. And I've seen this happen. So just so everybody knows, it's not all a free-for-all in court. Judges don't put up with this kind of stuff that the church is pulling, and they wouldn't put up with it from a lawyer for one second. I've got stories. You've got stories. We've got a lot to cover. But I did want to bring up this particular redefinition from Elder Bednar, because he seems to be redefining the term see, as in S-E-E, as in to perceive something with one's eyes, right? Seeing. We all know what seeing is. You see it with your eyes. But recently... He's given a talk called That Ye May Believe, in which he seems to openly be redefining the term seeing. So it's not a hidden redefinition. It's an open redefinition. And this may be for a different purpose. So let me go ahead and find this quote for you. It's about one minute and nine seconds long. 
And all I have to do is open up this link, and I think I can play it to you from his Facebook page. As a way of introduction for this clip, RFM, am I correct in that this is the same talk that you and the backyard professor have done uh, a, a larger deconstruction on? Or is this a different? No, this is the same one. Okay, that's what I thought. So if people wanted more background in the entirety of the talk, they could listen to your episodes with the backyard professor. Yeah, so let's see how this works and see if I can get this to play for us. Now, comparing and contrasting the teachings of Alma and Korahor is most instructive. Alma declares that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. According to Alma, with Christ-focused faith, believing that which is true but not visible is, in fact, seeing. Okay. So right there is where David Bednar changes the use of the word seeing. What he says is that if you have faith in Christ, it's the same thing as seeing. Right. So I see this as an explicit redefinition of a term, but in order to further unstated goals of his. Well, and I think, you know, this is a really interesting one to me because one of the stories before my wife and I left the church, I was the gospel doctrine teacher for four, almost five years. And one of my favorite stories to recount, there were two where I would kind of teach the same principle that Elder Bednar's teaching, but I was more honest about it. I would talk about the road to Emmaus that's in the story of the the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which I think is in Luke 24, if I remember right. It's in Luke, definitely. One of the things I would build out of that story or take out of that story for me was this idea that the witness of the spirit was more powerful than the disciples recognizing Christ on the road, because these were people who presumably would have known what he looked like. And, you know, there's speculation that for some reason, the spirit like hid his appearance. I don't really know how that, you know, would work um, even in as a believer, how the spirit would give you the gift of like disguise. I've never seen that spiritual gift, but the bottom line is I would use this story to say that the witness of the spirit is more or, or can be more meaningful than just seeing compare that to like Laman and Lemuel, right? We have lessons like this all the time. They saw an angel and it didn't change their behavior. The difference is elder Bednar is teaching the same principle, which I, I can understand where he gets there based on my view of Mormon doctrine and their scriptures, but it's not the same thing to say that it is the same thing I think is dishonest. And I'll just tell you that after studying the new Testament for some time, it eventually occurred to me that all the post virtually, I think pretty much all the post-resurrection experiences or encounters with Jesus described in the New Testament have one thing in common, and that's that nobody recognizes him. The people yeah, who knew him, walked with him day to day, nobody recognizes him on the road to Emmaus or Mary at the tomb at the end of John or all these other different places. Nobody ever recognizes Jesus, which leads kind of to the obvious conclusion that Jesus didn't look the same. That's I, that is a great observation that maybe there's more going on in the story than we're, we're told. And it's I interesting think, that in this way, I'm sorry, that our conclusion, our belief that we already understand the truth, which is that a resurrected being looks exactly like the person in mortality, right? Maybe a little bit better looking, maybe not so fat, maybe with more hair, but they're recognizable. The fact that we think we understand that 
effectively prevents us or most of us from seeing it in the New Testament, even when it's right in front of our face. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think that's that's this whole idea of the biases we bring to the table and that we don't re-examine. I think for the purposes of it, well, and I think that talk from um, Elder Bednar or that clip from Elder Bednar is another great example of just redefining. And I will say Elder Bednar seems to be a master of this because I know he's done a similar thing in a clip where he talks about agency and he talks about the difference between free agency, which he says doesn't exist because it isn't in the scriptures. So then he gives a term moral agency and representative agency. Also, both of those, the scriptures. yeah, both of those also don't exist in the scriptures, by the way. Um, but um, he uses this idea that there is no such thing as free agency because those ideas don't exist in the scriptures. So let me tell you about these other two ideas that also don't exist in the scriptures, but I think are true. Um, I know. And then amazingly in his version, moral agency becomes the ability to not make a decision for yourself. Yeah, that's absolutely right. He says that you are not given the ability to choose, uh, which is astounding to me that he can say things like that. Um, it's like it's like something out of 1984. It, it is very much like that. I think for the purposes of time, and also because I think this is the least interesting point I had built out, maybe we skip this church apologetics one. What do you think? You mean about the Daubert? Yeah. Test? Okay. So then we go to Ray Zipsa. I think maybe this will connect well with what we've already talked about too. Well, I guess I think you're right. So Ray, Ray Zipsa, Locuter. Okay. So we can go to this one. Let's go ahead and do that. I think it's okay. probably a good idea. Although, gosh, I really like this other stuff too. Okay. It, we'll see how this goes and maybe we'll come back to it in a future one. The next point that you wanted to bring up has to do with race ipsa loquitur. What does that yeah. mean? So res ipsa locator, like most fancy Latin phrases that lawyers use, um, has a really common uh, understanding. So res ipsa locator is this idea. It's often used in tort law, which is, you know, what people would think of as like a personal injury case or a product liability case. This concept is used, and what it means in Latin is the thing speaks for itself. And so this concept is used in tort cases to create an inference of negligence or bad action and then require the plaintiff in the case to prove the amount of damages. That sounds really, really complicated, but let me explain it with just a a common use of uh, this idea. So let's say that I go in for surgery, and while I'm anesthetized, some accident happens and let's say they accidentally cut off my right leg when they meant to cut off my left. That's an accident. That would be some accident. I uh, wake up from my uh, being knocked out by the gas and I realize, Oh no, they've, you know, they've amputated the wrong leg. Um, Now in a typical case where the plaintiff has to come to court and prove what happened to them and prove who caused the damage, that can be really, really difficult because I was under the gas for the entire time, right? And so res ipsa locator comes in to act and say, well, I was in complete control of this person, of the hospital as an entity or this doctor. And so this is the type of injury that only happens when the person who was in control made some type of mistake or committed some type of uh, breach, some type of duty. That's what we lawyers think of as negligence. And so it can be used to create this basically presumption for then the hospital to say, 
no, 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 we didn't make the mistake. An earthquake caused us to cut off the wrong leg or, or something like that. Basically. Or the patient misidentified which leg that needed to be amputated. Yeah, that's a much better example. The earthquake example probably isn't a good one. You're right. The, the patient is actually the one who made the mistake. And so how does this entire idea connect to Mormonism? Well, can I give you, you know, another example just for a course, second? Because this happens all the time. And I think this falls under race ipsa loquitur. Although I don't do a lot of personal injury practice, I've done a little bit. But the idea in a traffic accident, if my client is driving a car and he gets hit from behind by another car, the circumstances don't matter. The driver of the car that hits from behind another car is considered to be 100% liable for any damages that occur to the driver of the first car. Because there's no explanation for why a driver hits another car from behind that makes it so that that driver is not negligent. Yeah, that's another great example. And I think you see the same idea. It's not res ipsa locator, but you see the same idea behind res ipsa locator operate with um, like traffic tickets for the same type of thing, right? If you rear end someone, you're basically presumed to be at fault. And that seems weird since, you know, we grow up hearing a lot about how you're innocent until presumed guilty. Uh, or I'm sorry, you're innocent. You're presumed innocent until proven guilty. I'm sorry, I misstated that. But res ipsa is this presumption that basically operates, especially in these tort cases, where the one side has more control than the other side. And so where this connects to Mormonism, obviously, as I'm emphasizing control, that probably becomes apparent. But I hear this current apologetic a lot where the church or its leaders aren't to blame for members misunderstanding their own history. Now, there are some softer apologists, or I'd say more intellectually honest apologists. I know you just had Jim Bennett on Mormonism Live a few weeks ago, and he, to his credit, he was much more honest about the fact that the greatest single issue facing Mormonism, in his opinion, was the misunderstanding about prophetic infallibility, or as you put it, and I think accurately, inerrancy, doctrinal inerrancy. Um, and Jim was much more honest about the fact that the leaders have probably played the much larger role in members, you know, quote unquote, misunderstanding that. Oh, um, by the way, I've got a great example of this. I'm so sorry. It just happened this morning. No, go ahead. Go ahead. A friend of mine, uh, Rebecca Biblioteca, is at church because she's there because a member of her family is going on a, no, a homecoming from a mission. So she's at church where she would not be usually. And she texted me this morning that there was a speaker, of course, in sacrament meeting who had just claimed that Elder Ballard, or as Nima would say, Elder Ballard, Elder Ballard said that he saw Jesus. So this is the kind of thing that can happen in church. When actually, if you go back to the source, Elder Ballard said he had a dream about Jesus. But now the speaker takes that and says, no, he just saw Jesus and takes out the context. So in this way, we tend to delude ourselves. But this whole milieu of self-deception comes from the leadership of the church because they're the ones who want to prime us to believe that they have seen Jesus. And that's part of their apostolic calling. And that's what gives them the authority to speak in the name of the Lord and puts them a cut above most other people in the church. I will say that as far as Jim Bennett goes, he's a great guy. Patrick Mason's a great guy. Terrell Givens will do this too from time to time. But frequently, if they're just talking on their own, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on any one of these people individually, but I've heard them do it in different occasions. If left to their own devices, they will try and imply that the members are coming up with this idea 
on their own. And the members are wrong about this idea, like prophetic infallibility. And how on earth do they come up with this idea? Well, they all come with it on their own. And we need to think better about this subject of prophetic infallibility or whatever the subject may be. But whenever I hear them say this, I'm immediately thinking or even yelling. It's not the members who came up with it. They're being taught this by the leaders of the church. Do you think that all the members just come up with an idea out of the air and no leader has ever spoken on the subject? Of course, they're believing what the leaders have told them, and we can document that. But I will say to their credit, especially to Jim's credit, that when I bring that up, if he slips into that kind of thing about the members believe this, I just say, well, you know where the members got it from, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, of course, they got it from the leaders. So they will definitely admit it. But sometimes, sometimes it takes someone else to bring up the obvious fact to get them to acknowledge it in a public discussion. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think, you know, Richard Bushman is another figure. I think I associate with the softer tone of apologetics. Like you said, um, the people I have a lot of respect for, the Givens, uh, Patrick Mason, um, and, and Jim. And Jim was nice enough. I think you're right, um, that sometimes they do find themselves slipping into that because I think it's just easier, uh, to attribute the misunderstanding to the members. Well, definitely, um, from a polemic point of view, they can definitely disagree with what the members think, but they're on thin ice if they're disagreeing with what the leaders say. Right. And I think, Jim, I think it was good that you, in the recent interview, um, reminded Jim of that several times. And then, again, to Jim's credit, he was honest about that and said, yeah, that they played just as large of a role, if not a larger role, if I remember right. He also was a good sport because I called in and heckled him for like 15 minutes. Oh, that's right. I remember that was a great <laughs> moment in podcast history. So another one of these figures, like I said, that I, I think similarly can can be softer apologetics than like the Fair Mormon crew or Farms is Richard Bushman. Um, and I had noticed in a recent interview, I think it was with Gospel Tangents, he was uh, discussing gospel art. And he was responding to the question of whether or not gospel art had led people astray. And this is a quote from the interview. He said, quote, there was no leading astray. There wasn't leading astray by church historians or church leaders or anyone. Everyone believed that, and they were specifically talking about the Book of Mormon translation pictures. And he says, everyone believed that he translated using the Yerim and Thummim. Then gradually, these other accounts came up of him looking at a stone in a hat. And so Richard Bushman is much smarter than me, much better looking than me, much ah, well, well, much better, <laughs> much better studied than me in uh, Mormonism. And I That'll really have... I have really appreciated his book, Rough Stone Rolling, and how it's more honest than the church's conventional narrative. But this idea um, is, to me, frankly, ridiculous. Um, As we've already laid out above, these statements from early church history figures like Emma and David Whitmer already, you know, I think demonstrate that there's a, a truth problem with what, you know, Richard Bushman has said here. But connecting it to this idea of res ipsa locator, is res ipsa locator applies when the one side in a lawsuit has exclusive control over what's happening. They're presumed to act reasonably. And when they have exclusive control and something happens, that's where res ipsa says you had exclusive control. So you're probably responsible or almost certainly responsible for this mistake that has happened. And so I find it very troubling when 
softer, even softer apologists won't hold the church or its leaders accountable because they do have exclusive control over the messaging and the manuals at church. If you go to the church's website today and you were to type into the search bar, rock and hat or rock in hat, guess what will come back? The gospel topics essay and nothing else in manuals that are written by the church. And so to say that there's been no misleading, I just find that so difficult. I know that uh, you and I will talk on the phone from time to time. And one of the recent conversations we'd had, I had said, I'm, I'm a bit younger than you, obviously. Um, I'm what's known as a twilight millennial, like one of the oldest of the millennial generation. We didn't grow up with the internet. And so that's what they call twilight millennials, I guess. I didn't have a smartphone until after my mission. And one of the, the things that's been interesting for me, because I'm younger than you, is I am starting to Man, see... Man, you can't say that enough, can you? I know. Sorry. At least I said Richard Bushman was better looking than me, and I haven't made... Um, attractiveness comparisons between the two of us. I know, because if you did the same thing with me, we'd know you were lying again. <laughs> that's true. Oh, um, <laughs> But one of the things that's really interesting to me is um, I am, as a younger person, starting to see the gaslighting in real time. And the example I had given you recently is Elder Ballard, because they're trying to save face about um, missionary convert low retention rates, of, of recent convert baptisms, you know, Elder Ballard in some mission presence fireside within the last year or two said like, well, we have no idea where missionaries got this idea that they need to challenge people to be baptized in the first lesson. And like, I just want to say when I served my mission, um, I served in the Arizona Tempe mission and Elder Perry came to our mission and he directly challenged us to baptize in the first lesson. And I remember it so distinctly. It's like burned into my brain because it was the first time I'd ever had an apostle say something. Well, one, it was the first time I'd ever met an apostle. And, oh, and L. Tom Perry. L. Tom Perry. Yeah, okay. before he had died. Um, Presumably. And, <laughs> yes. Grace Epsiloquitur. Grace Epsiloquitur, I think. <laughs> So he he um, directly challenged us to be baptized. And I remember it so distinctly, it's burned into my brain because I disagreed with this idea mm. that we should be challenging people to be baptized on the first lesson because I thought the missionary, or, or I'm sorry, the baptism commitment is such a large commitment. And it's not appropriate for someone to really even be thinking about, or thinking about is probably too strong, but it's too too soon for someone to have a specific date that they're being asked to commit to when they don't understand the basics really of what church they're joining. Right. I remember when he did this and there was some kind of publication or some kind of media presence that had brought this to light that missionaries were challenging people to be baptized on the first discussion. And that got some bad press. So Elder Ballard's response was instead of saying what I think he should have said, which was, yes, this has been in the manuals ever since the 1980s and probably before that. I know that I was responsible, speaking for Elder Ballard, for the Preach My Gospel manual, he and the committee that he headed in order to create this. And that's in the Preach My Gospel manual today. But it's very important to realize that that is not written in stone. Instead, it says, if the Spirit should move you, then go ahead and invite someone to be baptized because we believe our missionaries are led by the spirit in finding people and teaching people and inviting them to be baptized. So he could have said that all of which would have been absolutely true from his perspective, but instead he punts and he says, I have no idea where the missionaries got the idea that they should be challenging people to baptism on the first discussion when he himself is responsible for it in preach my gospel. And it's actually still in preach my gospel today. 
If you look it up on the church website, look in the first discussion, you'll see a box that says, if impressed by the spirit in the first discussion, challenge them to baptism. Yeah, it is. I remember when that report, when I saw that report, I looked at Preach My Gospel on the church's website that day, and it was still in there. And I just thought, it it says a lot about a system. And I know that um, in the recent episode with Jim, when we talked about this a lot, it says a lot about a system that someone at the head of it can get up or in some type of capacity, speak for the organization, tell a blatant lie. And nothing happens. There's no accountability. There's no reckoning. There's no one who calls them on it. And that to me is the biggest problem with the church today is that there is no accountability for bad action from the leaders. That's very interesting. Actually, Nemo, Captain Nemo is going to be speaking about that very subject on this Wednesday's episode of Mormonism Live. And I pause there because I'm not sure if I'm going to have this up before that happens or after that happens. But regardless... (laughs) That's going to be the main subject matter of what he's been going through over there. Yeah, Elder Ballard should be fired. In a normal organization where someone comes out and does something like that, he should be fired. But there's no ability to fire apostles. God is the only one who can fire him, presumably by taking them out or having them die, crossing the, the crosswalk against the light or something like that. That's the only method of getting rid of people who do things that in any other organization would have them fired before the sun went down. He should have been cleaning out his desk. In another way, I look at this and I think, we call these church leaders. Elder Ballard is a church leader. This kind of thing that he did in this instance is not what a leader does. This is the worst kind of leadership, if you can even call it leadership. Because leadership isn't that complicated a thing. But 101 in leadership is you don't ask the people under you to do anything that you would not do yourself. And if you tell your people to do something and it blows up, you take responsibility. You don't blame it on them for something that you told them to do. That's not leadership. That's chicken shit. Yeah, it is. And it's it's interesting how when the church gets kudos for anything, the church gets the kudos, right? So when they talk about their humanitarian aid contributions, this just makes me want to pull my hair out because I say all the time, they don't have any money. Their money comes from from poor people or from people who are willing to donate or donate their time. Like they get all the credit for the things the members do. And then when anything then on the opposite side of the equation, when anything goes wrong, the members are to blame. And I'm just I'm so tired of this idea. And I really admire the example of people like Nemo or Peter Bleakley, another one of the Brit Ventures, who try to hold them accountable. I just know from my perspective where I try to do that and write in letters just about one specific issue about the church's child sex abuse policies. It became so frustrating getting bounced around different people and getting letters that are just full of misinformation about a specific topic that you just eventually you just give up to preserve your own mental health, or at least that's what I did. And so I do think that's the greatest um, issue facing Mormonism today. Um, It's interesting. I had recently kind of along the same lines as what we're talking about today. I recently started just a little blog that's called Mormonism on trial. And the whole idea is using, it's not trying to confront members or believing members with difficult issues in Mormonism. But what it is trying to do is talk about and use kind of like we're doing today, use legal concepts that have been tried and 
tested over hundreds of years to help us think about the way we think about things. And after the episode with Jim had aired the uh, Mormonism Live, I had thought for me personally, what the biggest issue facing Mormonism is because that's what Jim's topic was. And to me, it is this idea of there is no accountability and that. So anyways, that blog post about lack of accountability and healthy systems, how they have corrective measures should be up on Monday. Oh, fantastic. Well, I will tell you, there's one other thing that we are going to cover. We're going to do a part one today. We'll end in a few minutes. If there's a sufficiently robust response to this. We'll do a part two. How does that sound, Colby? That sounds great. I hope people like this and it's not just two lawyers talking inside baseball, but I think we've connected these concepts enough to Mormonism to help people see that there are other ways of thinking about these things. Because I think that really is, if I had to give people like a takeaway before we talk about this final last thing is I don't want to tell people the conclusions they should reach about the church. It's an entirely gigantic thing and it informs so many people's life experience. And I don't want to take any of the good away from people, but I do want people who no matter where they decide to fall on the spectrum to think about the way they think about things and the way they've reached these conclusions, because if it at least helps people take things a little less dogmatically, I think hopefully it'll be well-received. Right. And what I wanted to conclude with was going back to what you had said about Richard Bushman and the stone in the hat and the artwork that's produced by the church which conflicts with that story of the stone in the hat and his saying, well, you know, people just didn't know about it. The leaders of the church didn't know about it. We didn't know about it. We're just finding out about it now. And so the church is catching up to the current state of knowledge. That is not a good argument in my opinion, because this is the church who has its own freaking history department and the history department is about the church. So they collect the documents. They know what the documents are. They have experts in history that all they have to do is tap to write a paper for them about anything that they want to know about. And they're briefed on subjects all the time. And the thing that really put the pin in it for me was when in 2015, right after producing that church essay on the method of translation, including the rock in the hat, they brought the seer stone, the very seer stone that Joseph Smith used to translate or dictate the Book of Mormon out of the vault in the church office building where it had been sitting for over a hundred years. So they've had this the whole time. They brought it out for a photo op, remember, in that Enzyme magazine. So they have the essay, they supplement it with a photo op of the, the seer stone, and then it goes back in the vault. They've had this the whole time. Don't tell me they don't know about it. They've right. had it and they've had it hidden. Right. And as we laid out, right, as we laid out on our first issue of the rule of completeness, we have statements that the church has been relying on, at least in part, dating back to the 1880s, laying out that he had used the seer stone and the rock and the hat method. So this idea, yeah, it, it connects with both of these ideas. The church has this exclusive control, like uh, we talk about in Ray Zipsa cases. They have exclusive control over telling their own history. So they are responsible for the inaccuracies. And I want active members or even nuanced members to realize they have this control. And so they are accountable. You are not accountable for not understanding things that you weren't taught or things that you had to search out on your own. I was actively taught that the rock in the hat was a lie, right? In seminary. And and I think many people were. 
And so this isn't the only issue where the church gets into hot water for the way it's told its history. I would note that even though the church, I think today is in a much more transparent place than it was when I had kind of come of age, it's still to this day. Like if you look up the sources, uh, the different like source notes on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, they include lots of notes from Joseph Smith's personal journal. But they tell you right there, if you look carefully, they tell you right on the church's website that it is an edited or redacted version. And there are pages that are missing. They still are holding things back. And that's their prerogative to do so. But they don't get to claim full transparency or that they're as transparent as they know how to be when they're holding things back. They need to be open and honest about that. That's the way I was raised. And that's what I believe in being. You're muted. I feel like now I've really earned my stripes. I got to say RFM, you're muted. Yeah, I'll be RFM. editing that out. So, Dang it. <laughs> no, but this is the common pattern that the church does. First off, they hide stuff. And then if people find out about it, then they excommunicate the people. But if too many people find out about it, then they finally publish an essay and they blame the members for not having found out about the stuff that the church was hiding from them in the first place. Yeah, that's such a good example. I think aside from, you know, Richard Bushman's statement, the one that comes to mind is the one from Elder Oaks, the face-to-face, I think it was him and Elder Ballard, mm-hmm. where he says something like, when did we first publish that article about the seer stones? And I think it was in the 1970s, like, oh, we've been hiding that a long, long time. And I just, you know. It was a big laugh line. There is a great laugh line, but I really just want to grab him by the cuff and say, you slimy so-and-so, like, you know, you know that that was hidden. You Mm -hmm. helped hide it. You are so dishonest. But anyways, you probably want to edit that out. No, I think I'll keep that part in. Okay, great. Yeah. So we've been open about that since 1970, as if that's the entire history of the church. <laughs> well, and I guess so that that kind of connects back to my little closing on this topic, which is like I said, if you search the church's website today and you type in rock and hat or rock and hat, you get only the gospel topics that say nothing in manuals written by the church. If you type in those other statements that we talked about, the one from Emma, your father could neither write nor dictate a coherent or well-worded letter. You get two pages of results of church manuals. If I type in the words David Whitmer and never denied his testimony, I get five pages of results in church manuals. So what does that say? Like they have played this historiography game where they've picked and chose what parts of their history they want to tell. And that's their prerogative. But when people find that out, you're not crazy for feeling like you've been misled because you have been. Those things were known to the church as an institution the whole time. And people need to hold them accountable for the, the way they've been misled. Yes. And that's a great closing statement. I'll bring it back to the law. If we can imagine a trial where a person's on trial for whatever crime, let's just make it murder to make it sexy. Okay. So a person's on trial for murder and you have the prosecution over there and the prosecution gets to present whatever evidence they want. And the defense doesn't get to object. The defense doesn't get to make any motions. The defense doesn't get to present any evidence of its kind. Most people would look at that and think that's not a fair trial. And they'd be right. But that's what the church has been doing for 200 years now. I was going to say, and as we've talked about, it's not like the church is just playing by the rules when it's offering its cases. We've already said, if we were in a courtroom and the church as an entity and the way it's um, behaved ethically were to be 
put into one lawyer, that person would probably lose their law license instantly. So it's it's not even just one prosecutor getting to tell their side of the story. It's they got to play ethical games and get around a lot of the requirements that prosecutors like you and I, when we were prosecutors, are under to be more fair, that they've taken no steps to really do that. By the way, let me go ahead and say that when you are a prosecutor, you have an absolute duty to provide any evidence that you have to the other side, especially when that evidence hurts the prosecution's case. Yep. That's a case called Brady v. Maryland. Brady and it material. has to do, yep. It has to do with exculpatory evidence. The state has to give those things over. And yet the church has felt no duty to ever tell people the things. And it's even in the, as we pointed out, even in the very materials that it relies on to build up its narrative, the things that counteract that narrative in the very same documents. Right. And what would generally happen in case of a violation of the Brady rule, it goes up on appeal at some point, the defense finds out because they have to find out to bring it up that the state was hiding exculpatory evidence from the defense. Then it goes up on appeal. The conviction is reversed. And generally that prosecutor is fired. I was going to say, do you remember what a Brady violation is? It's prosecutorial misconduct. It is ethical misconduct. And it's hilarious that the church does the exact same thing. Yes, what they're doing is ecclesiastical misconduct. That is probably the best closing statement that uh, I've ever heard. I'm going to leave it there because it's not going to get any better than that. (laughs) 32 years of practicing law has taught me that much. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, It's been a pleasure to talk about this with you. You bet. And I look forward to having you back for part two, where we're going to cover some things that we didn't cover today, equally, if not more interesting than what we covered today. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, Colby Reddish, for coming on the show. That's about all for tonight. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. (laughs) 